work with a lot of executive teams, probably the same way that you do. And often what we look at is executive teams, bizarrely, in conflict. And when we look at where the conflict comes from, we often recognize that the conflict is there because there's a lack of trust. So you get back to, well, why is there a lack of trust? And bizarrely, when you get to the root causes, it's often the simple one, which is the executive group haven't spent much time together. And the time they do spend together is on transactions. It's on the business. It's the performance. It's the budget. It's, it's not on getting to know each other. The basic relationship building of getting to know another human and creating that level of connection that ultimately will lead to some level of trust. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to this episode of Conversations. I am Brian Gorman, Quantivos coach and your host. My guest today is Edwina Pike, creator of Irrational Change. Welcome, Ed. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm so glad to be here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because every time I have a conversation with you, I learn and I have a heck of a lot of fun. Me too. So, Ed, let's start with the basic question, what brought you to even think about irrational change and what the heck does that mean? It's a great question and it's an interesting part of my journey actually. And it goes back about, I'm going to say 2011, 2012. And I discovered, and when I say I discovered, it wasn't me that discovered it, but I fell into the world of behavioral science and I'm an engineer at heart. So I'm always trying to fix the world of how we change behaviors and how we basically work smarter, not harder. It's like my passion in life. And I just realized that as an adjacency, it had so much power in what organizations did and how they behave, yet nobody was using it. Like nobody was using it. And at the time I was in a corporate job, I was happy, I was challenged, I was doing amazing stuff. And I thought, this is amazing. And from that moment on, I thought there is an opportunity here to apply some of the stuff that's out there into our world of how you change organizational behaviors and culture. And I'll be honest with you, I thought somebody else would pick it up and run with it. And five years later, they hadn't, at which point I was getting a little bit frustrated and thinking somebody has to do something. Now, the word irrational comes from actually probably Dan Ariely, and he's got a great book called Predictably Irrational where he talks about the fact that humans, especially when we're cognitively overloaded, we are very irrational. We don't make logical choices. But the key thing here is we are predictably irrational. And it's that predictability that plays well. It's that predictability that gives us massive insights. So I really did it because nobody else did. And I have applied it ever since. Now, I have to say, it's a very powerful set of techniques when you work it through. So was that shift an irrational change for you? It, do you know what? It really was. I think 
you know when you read something and you know you immediately resonates for you and you think oh there's something in this i can use this and i have a habit and i know you do as well is i read quite widely i take on a lot of very diverse views a lot of very diverse bits of information because i'm always looking for something a little bit different a little bit unusual something that prompts me that makes me consider things differently and the area of behavioral science, which where I started off, that then led into anthropology and a few others. But the area of behavioral science just grabbed me and went, oh, now I understand what humans are doing. I understand better why we do what we do, which is like this nirvana for any behavioralist to say, oh, why are the humans doing what they're doing? Why do I do what I do? Why do I, you know, walk away from the range of craft gins in the store because I've got choice overload and it just helped me understand myself but also others and for me that was just fascinating it was like a whole new world had opened up a whole new world you mentioned anthropology and my undergraduate degree started off in architecture and ended up in cultural anthropology wow and for many years as a change management practitioner I didn't make the connection until I did which is really, whether we're coaches, whether we're organizational behavioral scientists, whether we're change management practitioners, we really are cultural anthropologists. And tying back to something you said earlier, what really fascinates me about that is that simultaneously, both how aligned we are in our cultures and how similar we are as human beings, and how differently we all show up. I completely agree. I was working as a change agent in Japan. I was lived in Tokyo for nine months, which was an amazing experience. And by then, I had a good emerging. I probably had a good three to five years of really good understanding of, you know, how organizations shift a little bit about behavior, a bit about culture. And I, I thought I knew some stuff. What amazed me, though, was that the models that I taught, some of the things that I knew, stood true, even in a culture as diverse as Japan, over what I had in the Western world. And that, that was one of the points when I realized that humans, we do have a lot of similarities. Yes, there are national cultures. Yes, there are different belief systems. But actually, we are quite similar in the way that we make the choices that we make. Now, I've looked deep into the world of social anthropology, and I do think this is one thing that's missing from our working environment. We don't give it enough credit. Because, and I think one of these elevates, when we use behavioral science, we move it into what I would call a group setting. We look at the dynamic of groups and the predictable behaviors of groups because groups have their own entire dynamic, as you well know. Um, and anthropology gives us some great understandings of why groups behave the way they do, which then gives you a high level of predictability about whether an organizational change might be successful or not or how to shift the behaviors, or why you're seeing the behaviors that you are. We don't talk about anthropology enough. I don't understand why. It feels to me as though it's the missing piece when it comes to organizational behavior. It's very interesting to me that what you're saying about anthropology, but also how we so rarely pay attention to culture in organizations. And really, the most voice I've heard about culture and organizations has been in the last couple of years with leaders saying, we need people back in the office because that's how we build and sustain our culture. And I want to go to a conversation I had with Chris DeSantis, who is the author of Why I Find You Irritating. Why I Find You Irritating is a book about 
intergenerational conflict in the workplace. And we were talking about this sort of pull back to the office for the reason of culture. And Chris said something very interesting. He said, if you want to know how to create a virtual culture, first you have to accept that it's possible. And if you accept that it's possible, ask your young employees. They have established relationships that they will be in for the rest of their lives with people around the world they have not met, they will never meet. So I think even in terms of culture and cultural anthropology, we need to be more observant of what people are doing and how people are making their work work. It's a fascinating one, actually, and it's quite funny because when the uh, the demand come back into the office, which really goes back to the command and control, and one of the things I think the virtual world shows up is you cannot get away with demonstrable leadership. By, by that, I mean the sort of leadership where I'm commanding, controlling, I'm watching over you. Now, the only reason I'm doing that is because I need to build trust, and the only way I can build trust, the only way I've learned to build trust, and let's be fair, I, I'm going to be very kind here to leaders because leadership is one of the hardest things you have to do, yet our leaders go out there untrained, if they're lucky, they've been inspired by a previous leader. So, and certainly in my field, they've been very poorly trained by most of the other change agents that have come before me. And I, it's, a, it's a process. Now, the interesting thing there is that what the leader is trying to do is they're trying to build trust in their teams. And their only way of doing is, uh, is overseeing their work in a transactional way. And for me, the thing that breaks open the whole virtual world is this element of trust. And with trust, I know I see it that you have to, it comes from two things really for me, proximity and purpose. There has to be proximity and that proximity doesn't have to be physical proximity. I think it helps if you can see somebody on a screen, but you can soon get that level of proximity feeling as you go through. And the purpose one is more about purpose. I'm not thinking about this as big purposeful work. What's my purpose in life? I'm thinking more about this as we have a shared thing, a shared interest, something that we're connected to that we both like or a shared goal we're trying to achieve, something that gives a reason behind the relationship we're building. But for me, trust is becoming more and more evident. And I'd never have identified that five, 10, 15 years ago. It's now becoming like this super power, this like magic sprinkle dust that seems to solve everything yet is missing. An example I'll give you of that, and I, we, we work with a lot of executive teams, probably the same way that you do. And often what we look at is executive teams, bizarrely, in conflict. And when we look at where the conflict comes from, we often recognize that the conflict is there because there's a lack of trust. So you get back to, well, why is there a lack of trust? And bizarrely, when you get to the root causes, it's often the simple one, which is the executive group haven't spent much time together. And the time they do spend together is on transactions. It's on the business, it's the performance, it's the budget, it's, it's not on getting to know each other. The basic relationship building of getting to know another human and creating that level of connection that ultimately will lead to some level of trust. Now, I do wonder, and I have a hypothesis that is not tested, but I have a wonder that you know, the old, in the old days, you'd go off on retreats, you'd spend time together, you'd build the relationships, you'd value that. It feels like in today's modern world, that feels like a luxury too far. Yet the cost of conflict is billions of dollars for the sake of spending a bit of time getting to know each other, building trust, building relationships in order to facilitate great working. I don't know. Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> I, I could tell you you're wrong, but I'd be wrong to, to do so. <laughs> I want to bring in here Judith E. Glasser's model for trust. 
and it's a neuroscience-based model. It's the only acronym I use. The acronym is TRUST. It is not a secret club acronym. We all know what TRUST means. And I'm diving a little bit into the model, and then I'll come back and fill in the rest, because R is relationship. Relationship is key to building trust. I work with senior executives. I work with frontline supervisors. I work with frontline employees. And the message is the same. If I'm working for the division superintendent, my commitment, my investment is going to be different than if I'm working for Ed Pike, if I know the person, if the person knows me. And so even right now at Quantivos, we're working with a major global employer, actually, that is bringing hourly workers into salaried positions in a very intentional way. One of the elements that we are coaching those employees on is their personal brand. An element of that personal brand is how do we build relationships? How do we build our relationships? How do we want to be known? And how do we get to know others? So real quickly, just to fill in the TRUST, the first T is transparency. And we all think about transparency in terms of sharing information and so forth. The piece of transparency that we most often miss is, and this is what I need from you. So transparency, relationship, understanding, that understanding that comes from deep listening, from appreciative inquiry, from really having the ability to see the world through the other's eyes, even. S is shared success, and that's not we all agree on the words, because you and I have both worked with a lot of leaders who want a wordsmith so they can all shake their heads, yes, and go off in the directions that they apply to the same terminology, but different directions. That S is having those tough conversations that bring us into alignment about the actual outcomes that we're working for. And then the last T is telling the tough truths with caring and candor. Wow. So I want to come back to irrational change. Could you give us an example of how you might approach change differently than someone who is applying a more traditional change management methodology, for example? So we make some assumptions. Um, and one of the first assumptions we make, and this is, there's a couple of things that differentiate us from your classic change models. The first assumption we make is that everyone is cognitively overloaded. We don't assume there's any space for rational thought at all. We assume not the worst, but we assume that everyone is cognitively overloaded and therefore there will be a level of irrationality in the decision-making. That way we're never surprised. The second thing we do is we look at things through the lens that the environment that you're in is also creates the choices that you make. So rather than focus on the individual, we step back from the individual and say, we believe that every individual is, is good and positive and that has the ability to do things. We believe that modern hiring practices mean you're rarely asking people to do things they're not capable of doing. So the issue isn't ability, the issue is going to be willingness. So it's all about how do I shift the willingness to make a consideration, to make a different choice, to do something differently that ultimately will then realize value. So we actually think about it a little bit differently and we say, how can we engineer the environment in order to make it easy for you to make a different choice? And we focus on this thing we call the moment of choice. 
Now, what we do have is a load of insight as to why organization, this is organizationally not at home. This is not about me choosing to go to the gym properly and eat you know, right foods and all the rest of it. The things we all struggle really badly with. This is about what I do in an organizational context and what the, the sort of choices we make organizationally, different set of processes to the ones we make personally. Now, in an organizational context, we know that the biggest driver of the choices that we make is our tribe. And this is the anthropology coming in. It's not our own ethics. It's not our own opinion. We might think it is, but actually we're motivated by the inclusion in our tribe. Now, we use tribe instead of team because team implies a formal organization structure and tribes operate completely outside of that. And there are tribes, strong tribes in most organizations. It might be a union. It might be everybody who's been in the organization for you know 15 years. It might be everybody who's worked on Project Phoenix because every organization has had a Project Phoenix at some point. But it's the tribal nature becomes very, very, very strong. Now, the basic understanding, the basic motivation, that tribal system is around my safety, is around, do I feel safe? Do I feel that I've got job security? And what you notice anywhere in the world of change is that when job security goes, you paralyze everyone. You paralyze absolutely everyone because most of us require our jobs, our work, in order to keep our family and ourselves safe. So we look at tribes, we look at inclusion, we look at the dynamics of tribes. And what we know, and this is not new news, Maybe we've repackaged it a little bit. Maybe we're trying to bring it to more of a massive and give more something that resonates better because the message hasn't quite got out there, is that the leadership of the tribe has the biggest differentiator on the choices that you make. We work to please the leader of our tribe. We work to keep them happy. Now, when I say that, I don't just mean we suck up to our leaders. I mean that we, we're there to, if we keep our leader safe and we keep our leader successful, they will keep us safe. It's a basic sort of like psychological contract that exists. So we don't try and change the individual. We try and change the environment. So we look at it through the lens of how do I shift the environment? One of my favorite phrases at the moment is you are the product of the five people you hang around with the most, which is a great way of looking at that environment and saying we are hugely influenced by the environment we're in. We shift the environment, we shift the leader on the basis that once we do that, everything else comes with it. You're more likely just to get the group to come with you rather than actually trying to work with a groundswell uprising. The problem with a groundswell uprising, which is what a lot of models look at, they go through the logic of, you know, I want to create some um, awareness, and I'm going to create some desire, and then you're going to like it, and then you like it, and you're going to make your own rational choice to follow this. Well, what we find is that actually it's that tribal nature has a stronger pull. And even if I think that this is a good idea, if my boss doesn't think it's a good idea, if my boss has other priorities, the dissonance between the two means I'm always going to choose my boss. And unless you can reduce that disconnect between what the boss's priorities are and what the change is, you're not going to go anywhere. And then the other thing we bring in is we bring cartoons to the play. And I'm going to mention cartoons because a lot of what we're doing is we're not necessarily, you know, we do some of our own research, but a lot of what we're doing is repackaging and making things very simple. The classic thing in behavioral science is make it easy. And we bring cartoons to play and really simple ways of explaining things that make it deceptively easy, or it feels deceptively easy. So you feel braver at trying something different because the something different is very small. Something very small with a very big impact. So we, ca we, we create the bravery to try something different as well. It's all about the moment of choice and willingness. So I, I want to explore a couple of things there. As I listen to you describe tribes, what comes to mind from an organizational perspective is organizational network analysis. 
who are the influencers and what is the network that they influence. And the value of identifying those influencers are they very rarely are the boss. And yet at the same time, as you're saying, there's a lot of research that says if the boss says that this is a bad idea, it doesn't matter how good I think the idea is. I'm going to listen to the boss. So two questions, and as coaches, we're trained to only ask one at a time, but I'm going to put two out there. Um, one, how do you identify the tribes and the tribal leaders? And two, how do you reconcile when the view of the tribal leader is different than the view of the immediate supervisor? Good questions. So how do you identify tribes and their leaders, the first one? And again, we, the reason why we use tribes and tribal leaders, it allows that possibility that it's not going to be the person who's on the org chart and actually be surprised at how often the person on the org chart actually is not in control of their own tribe. They are, it's what I would call an upside down relationship where they're, they're codependent, but they're certainly not in charge. They're being, they're protecting their team. That's their only way of survival. So how do you, so on the tribes, we spend quite a bit of time talking to people, bizarrely, because again, we believe in the humanity and we actually ask questions. Uh, we ask questions around, you know, so if you were on a project, who would you want to work with you? We observe who goes to lunch together. We observe who lives together, who goes to coffee together, who has conversations together. We do an awful lot of observable science stuff as well. We've never really, really, really got to most amazing network analysis that, that does all this for us. And maybe this is something that will come in the future. I don't know. Um, I certainly know that some of the social networking stuff that organization using is showing how connected people are now based on the number of relationships they have on the, on the uh, emails they send or yammers they send or whatever. So for us, it's about trying to understand. Now, one of our favorite things we do is we work back to history and we talk about the history as a way of giving us a predictor for the future. And the way that people talk about the past often gives you those insights as well. Now, we tend to take all of those and then we tend to group them together and try and work out what are the patterns and what are the themes and all of these groups that are holistic enough that they're likely to drive decisions or not. One of the first things we do with any group is the leader in the, on the organization chart is we put them through the, uh, the test of are they a credible leader? Are they actually leading the team or are they just simply trying to create an environment where the team doesn't fire them, if that makes sense, <laughs> where they actually manage to survive? So it's not as easy as you think. I've never found a great tech solution for this either yet. Who knows what might come in the future? But it's an awful lot of talking to people and understanding where the relationships are. And so a couple of key questions, you know, which is, you know, if you were to work on a project tomorrow, who would you want to have on the project with you? Tends to get you the people who are most useful. Now, on the reconciliation of the disconnect, once you realize there's a disconnect and the disconnect is quite visible normally, and you can see the signs of the disconnect, especially if you've got some idea you're trying to work with, you can see whether or not it's got a conviction. And... We give leaders a fair chance to create, you know, to get the time to get their own mental model in place. Because for most leaders, it's not a case they don't agree. It's not a case that they wouldn't necessarily adopt it, but it's just not right now. They're busy with other priorities. We have a, a couple of assessment tools that we use, ask great questions that show up the disconnect of the set of standard behaviors that we would expect a leader to have if they supported something. Now, whenever there's a disconnect, we use the assessment tools. I'm going to be honest, we use them as much because by taking part in something like that, in giving the answers, 
it makes you feel that you've contributed to it. So there's a little bit of a brain hack going on at the same time. And it also gives us something to say, well, actually, the audience has said the following. But we use that to be the honest broker. And what we find is that, um, again, another brain hack, information is the most one of the most powerful currencies in any organization. Information, especially information that is not widely known. Everyone's looking for insight into something. So we use that insight and that intelligence to then have the conversation and say, look, there's an absolute disconnect here. Unless we can resolve the disconnect, you're not going to realize your value. We're very honest about it. And in fact, there's a bit of language that I was taught by a change coach I had about 20 years ago. And the recommendation was that whenever you went into an assignment, you should always say these words and say them early in the assignment, which is, I am here for your success and not your comfort. Now, we try and say that two or three times at the beginning of any assignment because we know there's going to be a discomfort conversation coming up later. And this is almost like, I would call them permission-led questions. And I have to be honest, Brian, I'm not seeing an awful lot on the subject of permission-led questions when I go and do my research on it. But it almost leaves you, it's a bit of behavioral science going on there, that having made that sort of agreement earlier, because I've sort of nodded and said, yes, I accept that's going to be part of the relationship that you and I have. When I come back to you later, a month and a half, two months later, and say, this is going to be one of those conversations you're going to feel some discomfort about, you know you committed to having that conversation beforehand. <laughs> that makes sense. So we call it, and uh, we believe in the bravery of being honest. We could go on and on here. We could. And I really appreciate the perspective that, that you bring into organizations and organizational change. Before we wrap up, I'm really curious as to the shifts you have seen leaders make who are successfully into leading their organizations in today's very different, very disrupted work environment? It's a great question. Um, I'm thinking of two leaders that I've worked with more recently. And I think in both cases, they recognize that the world had changed and also had the recognition. I'd like to pull back and say, actually, I think it's probably that we're talking about it now. We're talking about so some of the things we're talking about now that I think is making things more acceptable. We talk about empathy, we talk about emotional intelligence, we talk about building trust, we talk about authenticity. Whereas these were things that were talked about before, but they were sort of nice to have and you didn't really need them. I think in today's world, what we're seeing is that you absolutely need them. And it comes out to the quality of relationships you can build and that you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. You don't have to be the functional expert. It's more about how you deliver through your teams. There's two leaders I'm thinking of at the moment. One is actually leading one of the most amazing industry transformations I've ever seen. And his style of leadership is collaborative, yet he takes his space. He gives strategic direction, yet he doesn't overpower. He creates the space for his teams to understand, to come through the mental model. He doesn't assume they can just switch on the leadership of a new idea. And these are sort of softer skills, and it takes a certain self-comfort, self-confidence, self-awareness. What I can tell you is authenticity is something you have to wear on your sleeve. You have to live it and you have to breathe it. Because in today's world, there are so many data points. In the old world, you could you could fake it till you make it. You can't anymore. There are too many data points coming at you. You have to find your own authentic leadership. And in fact, the one thing we would always say is that as a, for a leader, you have to accept any change before you can lead it. And the biggest failure that most change projects makes is they think their leaders are robots who can switch on their leadership and their conviction 
and they can't, and they don't give them the chance to rebuild their mental model. Accept the change before you lead it. Otherwise, everyone can see that you don't actually support it, and they won't support it either. I want to pick up on one thing that you said and then explore one final question. Even today, if you are the smartest person in the room, which quite literally could be true, you're not smarter than the collective in the room. And that calls for a very different approach to leadership. It calls for trust, you trusting those in the room and those trusting you. It calls for psychological safety, those in the room feeling that they can contradict you, they can challenge you, they can ask provocative questions, and it's okay. I agree. I agree. One thing I will say, and, and, and I'm sure you bump into it as well, is psychological safety is something that I think the diversity of thought and then the psychological safety so you can have the great conversations, that's where the magic happens. We talk a lot about psychological safety and there's a massive like wish that everybody wishes they had more of it. And there's a lot of conversation about how you make it happen. But I think we really have to look underneath it though and say, there's some levels of safety that come before that. You know, don't run before you can walk. Establish the basics of relationships to your point of trust, of the sense that I feel safe within my tribe and then build psychological safety. If you haven't got the basics in place, you're going to struggle at the top end. But I am so with you. Diversity of thought is where competitive advantage comes from. Absolutely. Which means you've got to be open to listening to it. So the last point that I'd like to explore with you, and we're going back to cultural anthropology, um, this has always been true about change. I think it's becoming exponentially more true. When you're bringing a big change into an organization, you're very often asking leaders who have invested their careers in building something to let it go and to dramatically reshape it. And we tend to make the argument about the benefits of doing that. There's grief associated with that. Again, historically, as leaders, as change practitioners, we have approached change as if it's a rational thing. And whether or not it's irrational, um, it is an emotional thing. How do you approach the emotion that's associated with the need to let go of things that leaders and employees at all levels of the organization have invested a lot in? So I'm, I'm with you. We actually use a slightly different approach, which is going to probably make you think a little bit here. Um, because I agree with you, the, the, the loss, loss aversion is one of the biggest biases we have. We hate to lose what we have. We hate to lose what we've built because we've invested the time and energy in it. That doesn't mean that we can't feel good about something else instead. And so the number one said, if, if somebody's feeling the sense of loss, we recognize the, the sense of loss. But I would also say we have a, we have a saying in our world, which we do not criticize the past. We never, ever, ever criticize the past. Because the worst thing you can do is criticize. The people in the past, when, when those decisions were made, they were the best decisions that could have been made in the situation at the time. The future may look different, but they were in the past and never, ever, ever criticize the past. The second thing we would do is we chunk the change into small, small, small chunks. So it never triggers your threat threshold. You know, that amygdala hijack going off, you're feeling a sense of threat, which is part of that loss is often not just the loss, it's a sense of threat, it's a sense of I don't know, it's the unknown. So we chunk things into very small changes where you don't have to be very brave to make the step forward. That's the second thing we do. 
The third thing we do in order to just keep below the threshold is we involve people. We try and create involvement because we know that if you take part, if you genuinely contribute, I don't just mean come into a session, be briefed on the change, be asked the question is, do you like the color on the cover of the brochure? You know, therefore you've been involved and now you can go. But if you truly involve and if you leave space for humans to make choices, then guess what? They, they feel more in control and they feel that it's theirs. And once they feel it's theirs, they will protect it more. So leave space for choices. Leave space for the team to shape it. Because guess what? If they do that, they will love it forever and they will defend it more than ever. We don't give enough space. We put project teams in rooms. They come out six months later with an idea. We don't give the space to co-create, yet that co-creation is a very, very, very powerful thing. Edwina Pike, Irrational Change, thank you so much for this conversation. You're very welcome. It's always good to talk. <laughs>